0: To look at at some end time things, there's a lot of cool things that are are spoken of and revealed in this chapter. Just just, just so you know, we're gonna uh, be connecting these these passages of scripture to Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, uh, Daniel chapter 9, uh, 11, and 12. And um, we're not. I'm not gonna have you turn to all these places as we go through, but just so you know. Um, when we begin to talk about end times things in regards to chapter 21 of the Gospel of Luke, that, that they're spoken of in many other places in the Bible. And really what we know is that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And one of the things that we, we hold true to when studying God's Word is that, that no one passage of Scripture in the Bible can make another passage of Scripture untrue. And and so when we take things in context and we read them in, in in order and take the whole counsel of the Word of God, that's where we get correct interpretation. And so hopefully that's taking place today um, uh, through the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I will say that there are lots of different beliefs in regards to the, the timing and the order of these in times things. Um, and so there's room for that, and if you believe differently than what I'm setting forth this morning, um, I would challenge you to uh, just be open-minded and and be teachable. Um, not to say that you're wrong, but just be open-minded and teachable to what the Holy Spirit has today, and, and remember that um, when it comes to the order of end times things, never once are we told in Scripture that if we believe a little differently than one another that we should how, somehow divide, and I say that because there's been divisions within the church over the over centuries, and where we have whole denominations that have risen up because of these particular things we don't that people don't agree on, and they're like, "Well, I don't agree with you. I'm gonna go start my own church," and and uh, whole denominations have been born out of this this these kinds of things, and and it's it's an awful testimony to the world when believers separate over things like this, and it breaks the heart of God. And really, these things should unite us. We should give grace and uh, to one another, and, and openness to, to uh, see things maybe a little differently than what I put forth this morning, um, and let people be wrong if they want to be wrong. <laughs> and, and I say that jokingly, but what I really mean by that, guys, is I, I have settled these things in my heart. I still want to remain teachable, and I had great conversation with another guy about a different points of view last night. And um, uh, and am um, open to, to what other people have to say, but we, you need to settle these things in your heart because Jesus wanted his disciples to have these things settled in their hearts. Because when we know what the Lord's going to do and the work that he's told us that he's going to do and his return in regards to the future that we're looking forward to, you should, we should be encouraged. And the Lord wants us to be encouraged and to settle these things in our hearts are an encouragement, but also it should, it it gives us a perspective when we understand um, that that the Lord's still doing a work in the future and uh, in regards to our lives, in regards to the promises that He set forth for us, in regards to the nation of Israel. But in all of those things is that the very end of this chapter, the Lord puts forth this admonition to his disciples. He kind of says, Hey, listen, this is what's all going on. I'm going to answer your questions. But this is the the why for, the what for, in regards to what I've told you. And, and it's this call to be prepared, to be living expectantly, to to and 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 our doctrine needs to influence the way that we live. And, and our understanding of the Lord's promises and, and our theology, meaning our understanding of who the Lord is, um, also needs to influence the way that we live. And so I pray that that would take place this morning, that ultimately we would be encouraged and that we would reevaluate our lives and see what the Lord is calling us to and be sure that we're um, looking forward, that our perspective as we live in this temporal realm that we were reminded that um, there's, there's more to come and that the more to come is greater than what is now. Amen? All right, so as we continue on through chapter 21, um, we pick back up. We're going to start in verse 20, and we really pick back, in the, pick back up in the middle of a set of answers. Okay, these are the answers given by Jesus in response to the questions that he had been asked by his disciples back in verse 7. You can look back there and reference it if you want. And ultimately, their question had to do with three things. The future of the nation of Israel in total. And they had asked about their nation's future because Jesus had predicted um, several things. He had predicted the destruction of the temple... And he had spoken a rebuke of judgment, uh, a rebuke really and judgment against the nation and its leaders for their rejection of him as their Messiah. And if you remember, Jesus over and over again as he had encountered them, uh, throughout his three years of ministry and even in this final week there in the temple and in the city of Jerusalem, as Jesus had, in, in, in had these encounters or really these confrontations with them, is that he was, he was reasoning with them and opening up their understanding to truth over and over and over again with them. And, and yet, we know that in spite of the truth, They rejected him as their Messiah. And in this judgment that Jesus had proclaimed, he said this. He said, see, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, Jesus was referring to himself about blessed is he. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in light of this, his disciples wanted to know when these things would come to pass, construction of the temple um, uh, and the future events that would lead up to it. So they wanted to know when these things would come to pass and what would be the signs to identify when these things would come to pass. In other words, what can we look for leading up to the the coming to pass of these things? Furthermore, they wanted to know what would be the signs of his return and, 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 and then, of course, the signs... Of the end of this age, and and um, if you were here last week, as we read Jesus's answers um, or his answer to the first part of the disciples' questions, uh, it sure looks it sure looks like we are now living in the time described by Jesus as the beginning of the end of of uh, of, of the beginning of the end of the time of the time um, as as is labeled and back in the book of Matthew as the beginning of sorrows, right? We talked about that last week. And as I expressed last week, because of what the Bible tells us, I believe that our time here is short. And I believe that we are the the quote-unquote the generation. We are the generation described by Jesus in these verses that we're going to now read as those who will see these in time things come to pass and that we as a generation will not pass away before Jesus' return and before the kingdom of God is established here upon this earth. So before we jump back into chapter 21, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. In short, these prophetic things need to have application into our life. They call us to action, and in First Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven, this kind of summarizes, if you will, um, the action that needs to take place. There are response in regards to how do we apply these truths to our lives in regards to living in the in times and and knowing that the Lord's return is near. And in verse 7, picking up in verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 4, on through verse 11, Apostle Peter writes and he says this, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. But above all things, have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So two things to begin with, Right? prayer, be serious and watchful in your prayer, and have a fervent love for one another. And and again, why? Because we're living in the end times. The end is near. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And and that can be key because we know as Christians we're to be hospitable and um, Lots of times, uh, we talked about last week, we, we, we try to guard our heart, we try to tr- protect our own lives, and we, we only let certain people in, or we're only allowed, we only allow ourselves to go a certain distance in regards to opening ourselves up to, to others around us, and um, yet we do it, but we go, Lord, I'll do it, but I don't want to. You know, like, go clean your room. I will, but I don't want to. And, and, and we're called to be hospitable. We're called to be open. We're called to be inviting. Do you know who your neighbors are? Have you gone and said hello to them lately? Have you gone and checked on them? You know, in a society that we live in today, if someone knocks on your door, (laughs) that would be a little more than grumbling, but, but guys, we're called to be different than the world we live in. We're called to be different than the culture and the society that we're a part of as Christians, being citizens of a heavenly kingdom, being strangers in a strange land, you know, a peculiar people that we've been, been grafted into. We need to be hospitable and to do it without grumbling, meaning there needs to be joy, a desire, a true desire from the Lord. And why? Because the end of all things is at hand. This is what the Apostle Peter is telling us to do. And it's so easy to just go along with the norm of our society and to have safe relationships through social media and not put ourselves out there, whether it's in the church family or with those in the world around us, and, 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 and not answer the call of knowing that the end is near. To be hospitable with one another without grumbling. And as he goes on to say, and as each one has received a gift, the gift, minister to one another. God's given us spiritual gifts. He's given us not only spiritual gifts, but a lot of a lot of physical gifts as well. He's blessed us. And he says, minister those as good stewards of the manifold of grace of God. Basically, what that means is remembering that all good things that we've received is from God. It's not ours. It's only we're only to be that, that conduit, if you will. That that what comes in goes out. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak to the oracles of God. In other words, God reveals things to us. We know God's word. We hear from God. That's what we pour into other people's lives. Not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. He says, if anyone ministers, and and really what he's saying, we are all called to ministry. We're all in ministry. We're all to be ministers. And he says, if anyone ministers, so if we're doing this, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, not in our own strength, but with the strength of the Holy Spirit. Reliance upon God, dependency on God. Why? Why? so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And and, and ultimately, that last verse sums up the whole of what we're called to, because in that, Jesus Christ is made known. And our job is to make him famous. To make him famous. So that others may not perish that others may not be left behind that others will 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 escape the wrath that is to come like we have escaped the wrath that is to come so with that with that admonition with that reminder in first peter we're going to we're going to read in verse 20 go on through verse 24 and and stop there but before we do let's pray and as we pray for the churches in our community this week let's pray for the, the Vineyard Church there, uh, Luke is the pastor, Pastor Luke, and um, there's others who minister there, and we know that the people who go to church there love the Lord. So let's pray for the Vineyard Church, our brothers and sisters there, and for our time, if you bow your heads. Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord, that tells us about um, your work. Pray, God, that you give us understanding. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you and receive what you have from us. Lord, that we may be prompted and encouraged and motivated, Lord, to follow you um, with all of our heart, to pray with fervency, Lord, to not waste the time that we have left here, that you may be glorified through us and in us so that people may know you so that we may know you more. And Lord, we pray for our our brothers and sisters over at the Vineyard Church this morning, Lord, as they gather together and worship you and seek revelation from you, Lord. We pray that it would come through the teaching of your word, Lord, that truth would be made known, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out. Pastor Luke, as he teaches this morning, God, that he would um, submit himself to you. And that the people that come there, Lord, would be encouraged and blessed. And then, if anyone comes there who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would be saved. And I pray that here also. If anyone here this morning doesn't know you, Lord, that they would know you. That, the, that the, the, the scales would be removed from their eyes and their hearts would be softened to the truth of who you are and the work that you've done for them. And, Lord, that they would put their hope and faith in you. Lord, teach us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 21, verse 20, it says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that All things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and woe to those who are nursing babies (coughs) in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, as we pick back up in this chapter here in verse 20, I want to remind us that Jesus had clearly predicted, in the verses leading up to this, He clearly predicted the destruction of the temple in verse 6, saying that, even, that not even one of its stones would be left, upon, left standing upon another. And as they explained last week, this prophecy regarding the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem came to pass in 70 A.D historically we know that just not because of biblical history but because of secular history we know it to be true and just like jesus said it would even though it seemed like an impossible thing it came to pass and 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 there's nowhere else in in any kind of writings out there that predicted that i mean again this is just complete validation to the things that we're reading here are true. And if we can trust those prophecies that Jesus gave regarding the temple and the destruction of the Jerusalem that came to pass in 70 AD, we can trust in the fact that the rest of the prophecies that we're reading about that have not yet come to pass will come to pass like Jesus said they would. And I point all this out in regards to to Israel and the words that Jesus spoke and the prophecies that have come to pass and, and will come to pass, because the words of Jesus here in verses 20 through 24, they, they appear to be referring to what took place in 70 AD when the Roman armies, under the command of General Titus, had surrounded Jerusalem... And eventually made their way into the city and destroyed the temple. We talked about that in detail last week. and so these words that Jesus speaks here in verses 20 through 24 appear to have been prophetically uh, related to what took place in 70 AD. And Jesus gave the instruction in verse 21, saying that when the Hebrew people saw Jerusalem surrounded by their armies, that they should flee out of judea and go into the mountains for the des- the desolation or the destruction of jerusalem was near and and this was an important d- instruction at that time because the hebrew people at this time believed and they expected that the messiah would return in glory when the hostile gentile armies would when they when they seen them surrounding jerusalem and they believed that that at that time that they they would be delivered that they and their holy city would be delivered from these enemies. Yet, because what Jesus is saying here, yet because they had rejected him as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the deliverer, because they rejected Jesus, the Messiah would not return at that time to save them. Jesus pronounced, that's why Jesus pronounced or proclaimed this judgment. Sadly, History teaches us that when the destruction of Jerusalem came in 70 AD, nearly one million Jews were killed and another 100,000 were taken captive by the Roman armies. But the ancient, here's a cool fact, the ancient historian, Eusebius, he wrote that at that time when this happened, that very few Christians perished in the fall of Jerusalem because the Christians fled to the city of Pella in response to a quote-unquote an oracle that had been given by revelation. This oracle, this revelation, out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, that says, when you see these things, flee. They believed, and they fled, and they were saved. Now, as is the case with many prophecies that are found within the Bible, we see that this prophecy has a dual fulfillment. We've been talking about this on our Friday morning Bible study <clears throat> as we've been going through the book of Isaiah where we see that the prophet Isaiah was prophesying many things to the nation of Israel in regards to the judgment that was coming upon them for their idolatry and how Assyria and Babylon was going to come and invade them and, and, and take them captive and, and, and destroy the temple in the Jerusalem also at that time. But we know... Because of a lot of the other passages that we read, that those prophecies that Isaiah had given, which was relevant at the time that he was living, because we've seen them come to pass, historically we can look back on them, but we also know that those, those prophecies that, that Isaiah spoke of also gave word of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. And also not only the coming of the Messiah, but the coming of the kingdom age. And so we see that in many places in Scripture, when prophecy was given, not only did it have an immediate application, but it also had a future relevance that was still to come. A dual fulfillment of prophecy. And we see that, I believe we see that once again here in regards to the words that Jesus Christ has spoken And, 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 and so these same prophetic words, which are spoken of, which happened in 70 AD, they're also pointing us forward, pointing us to future events that I believe that are still coming to pass. And this this, this is apparent. My belief is rested in, in what we read in the parallel passages that I mentioned to you earlier uh, because of what we read in Matthew chapter 24 and in Mark chapter 13 and also in those passages in the book of Daniel. And so when we look at all of these things, all of these passages together, and consider the events that are being described, it's evident that Jesus was also referring to a a future time that was previously foretold of by Daniel. That is still yet to come. Now the thing to keep in mind about about the news of these events, which we're reading about that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and that ultimately he's speaking to us down through time, to the age that we're living now, is that these things are all answers to the disciples' questions. Second question, okay? The question of what will be the signs that we can look for before your second coming? What are the signs to look for before Jesus' second coming? And the first thing that Jesus points to is Israel being surrounded by their armies, and, and, and which would be, would be a sign the, of the time that Jerusalem's destruction is near. Now, as we look at this in regards to future events, we know that this prophecy, that it wasn't even really looked at by Bible scholars of recent age um, in, 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 in a literal fulfillment until the nation of Israel became a state once again. Because before that, they're like, how can this apply to the nation of Israel? Well, the nation of Israel isn't even around Yet, when some certain events took place not too many years ago, then understanding, God opened up our understanding to what we see now. We see how these things could not were not just figurative, but they were also speaking of literal events that were still to come. And so as we look at that, the thing that you need to know now is that Israel's borders, as in regards to the land itself, borders with four other countries still the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea, but, uh, but what we know is, is that there's Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, right? And out of these four countries, only Jordan and Egypt currently have a peace agreement with Israel. Okay? However, this does not mean that in any way that Jordan and Egypt are friends of Israel. On the contrary, both of these countries are Arab countries with Muslim leaders who openly support Palestinians, or Pal- the Palestinians, and furthermore, Hamas, which is a Palestinian-Sunni-Islamic-fundamentalist-militant-terrorist organization. Furthermore, both Jordan and Egypt are constantly pushing the United Nations and Israel to divide Jerusalem and give part of their capital and part of their God-given land over to the Palestinians and recognize them as a sovereign nation. So it's safe to conclude that at this moment of time, the nation of Israel is literally surrounded by their enemies. And I was speaking to Jacob Francis a little bit about that last night as well. And he said, not even in regards to the land masses, but you have uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran that can come up from the, from the south through, through the sea. And then, and then really, when you begin to think about it, and this has all kinds of other implications, but the whole Mediterranean Sea on the whole, a whole western border of Israel, that's literally controlled by Russia right now. The Russian Navy. And so even the the ports are a point of, of Israel being surrounded. And the interesting to note that this current situation is really a recent development, historically speaking, considering that Egypt has historically been a close ally and a friend of Israel really since its rebirth. I'll say this: following the Six-Day War. Okay? <laughs> we know that when Israel was, was, was rebirthed in 1948, that Egypt was still under British rule, okay? And, and I don't want to get too much into the history of it. I know there was a six-day war that came shortly after that. But, but ever since, and, and, and really, we think, well, at that time, they were surrounded by all their enemies. Lebanon had nothing to do with the six-day war. Syria and Jordan and Egypt and really Russia indirectly as Russia was given intel to Egypt at the time. It's very fascinating when you go and study it out in regards to biblical prophecy. But other than that short time, but now with Lebanon and, and Syria and Jordan and Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia and now Egypt, because in 2013, what we know in 2013 Egypt experienced a military coup. Do you guys remember reading about that or hearing about that? And their president, Mohamed Morsi, who was true a true friend to Israel, was forced from office by General Abdul um, Fatah el-Sisi. We, we, we mostly hear about him as Sisi now. And he's an Islamist um, militant, uh, an Islamist, um, someone who believes that... Um, Islam should be a national state throughout the whole world, okay? He's an Islamist uh, uh, militant, and he's actually affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. You've heard of that before. And the Muslim Brotherhood organization, they call themselves an organization. They're really a bunch of militant terrorists. He then assumed office, the office of president, and he has ruled Egypt ever since, and I point these things out to illustrate that Israel is, really in the first time since its rebirth, it is truly, once again, literally surrounded by their enemies. And it appears that the prophetic stage, as Jesus refers to it as here, in regards to a sign before his return, it, it appears, guys, that in our lifetime, in just recent years, that the prophetic stage has been set for Jesus' return. This is just one of the things. How about you, but that, that should make the hair on the back of your head stand up. It does for me. But in regards to Jesus speaking about these this, this future slash current event, we know that when Jerusalem is once again surrounded, and this is how we also look at this, as a, 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 this prophecy as a dual fulfillment, okay, here I'm bringing it all together, hopefully for you, is that when we look at this future current event, we know that when Jesus is, is that when Jerusalem is once again surrounded by his enemies, that, that when we look to the total of what Scripture says about it, it tells us that it's desolation, Israel's desolation, will not come immediately. Now, it did back in 70 AD, figuratively speaking, relatively speaking. But not this time. In fact, we are told that when Israel is surrounded by their enemies, that there will be a man who comes on the scene. Bible refers to him as the Antichrist, the Antichrist, not a Antichrist, but the Antichrist, one who will no- negotiate a treaty, a peace treaty, between Israel and all of her enemies who are surrounding her. And, and, and through this treaty, he will usher in a time of peace. And as a result, and it's a very unusual thing, that as a result that this man will become a mighty world leader, the Bible tells us not through the force of power, but through the brokering of peace. Through the brokering of peace, he will become a mighty world leader. However, after this happens, that three and a half years into this treaty that, that he has negotiated, it tells us that he will enter into Jerusalem. He'll go into the temple, which will be rebuilt. And he will sit down in the Holy of Holies and he will demand for the hebrew people to worship them worship him as their deliverer as their messiah and in matthew chapter 24 and in mark chapter 13 this event is accounted and it is identified by the terminology that we are familiar with as which is called the abomination of desolation and we get that phrase that terminology that jesus spoke of as 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 it was first spoken of by Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the book of Daniel. And it is recorded in three different places in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, and Daniel chapter 12. And Jesus said when his people see this come to pass that they need to flee their country because the days of vengeance... Which have been prophesied about will come to pass now this event is something that, that, that must come to pass before jesus 's return, and it 's important information because Jesus had just previously said to his disciples back in verse eight he said, Hey listen there's going to be many who are going to be coming in my name saying and claiming that they are me. So they needed to know these things in order to not be deceived by those who are claiming to be Jesus' name. Likewise, this is something for us to pay attention to because even today there are many people who are still claiming to be Jesus who has returned. But it's it's obvious when you understand what the Bible teaches is that they cannot be him because the temple has not been rebuilt yet and the abomination of desolation has not yet taken place. And Jesus said, I'm coming after that. And Jesus will not return to set up his throne until the Antichrist has been revealed. But when the abomination of desolation occurs, then there will be a a three-and-a-half-year countdown that begins and ends with the coming of Jesus, the true Christ. And during those, those remaining years of the seven years of the Great Tribulation, there will be an outpouring, the Bible tells us, an outpouring, a continued outpouring of God's wrath like had never been seen before. And Jesus said in verse 23 that in those days, listen, look there, it says that in those days there will be great distress upon the land and upon the people. Now, before the, this, this literal and physical return of Jesus, when the true deliverer and the Messiah will come to defeat Israel's enemies and set up the throne in Jerusalem, uh, 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 and to usher in a time of peace like the Earth has never seen, the Bible tells us that there will be more signs that take place other than what we just read. And in verse 25, Jesus went on to say, "And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and the Earth distresses and on the earth distresses of nations with perplexity. Uh, the sea and, and, and the waves roaring and men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming upon the earth for the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And, and, and all of these things which we're reading about are, are spoken of and prophesied about prophesied by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. We talk about the bowl judgments and the, and the trumpet judgments and, and and so on and so forth. And you can go and read about these these signs with the sun and the moon and the distress upon the earth and you're like, yeah, that's pretty intense. And Jesus says in verse 28, then now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption, your redemption draws near. Now, I... I this is so key because, you know what, and you guys know this, but there are many people who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God today, right? They don't believe that. And because of that, they doubt that He will ever come again back to the world. A lot of these people that don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God believe in a historical Jesus. And, and, and that's because they're being reasonable. If you don't believe that Jesus didn't come back you just have to it came the first time, excuse me, you have to ignore all kinds of just secular historical evidence. You're just a, a complete fool if you don't believe that Jesus never existed. Okay? And 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 so, but people who are at least reasonable and believe that Jesus existed, they don't believe that he's the son of God. That's where they draw the line. And in doing so, they don't doubt, they don't believe, they doubt they don't believe that he will come again into the world. But these verses, okay? These verses are very clear in telling us that there is coming a time when they, when they will see Jesus when He comes again. However, when Jesus comes for the second time, it's going to be a whole lot different than when He had first come. The Bible tells us this clearly. And the fact of the matter is, he won't be coming like a little baby in a manger, and he won't be riding into Jerusalem humbly on the back of a donkey. On the contrary, Revelation chapter 19, if you want to go and read that and look at it, it tells us that when Jesus returns, it will be in power and in glory, and his eyes will be like flames of fire, and he will strike down the nations as he comes to judge and makes war against those who have risen up against him. Now, as Jesus is answering, the part of his disciples' question now that deals with the signs or the events that are going to take place prior to his physical return, he tells them this, this parable of the fig tree. And in verse, verse 29, he says, it says, then he spoke them a parable. He said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are re- when they are.'" Already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see that these things, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now the thing about about this parable that that Jesus gives here is is like we know that a parable is is a, uh, is an illustrative way of revealing truth and specifically spiritual truth and so this this fig tree is used as an illustrative picture of of of, of Israel, and we know in this passage we know that to be true because of 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 some things that prophetically line up in other passages of scripture what we read here but all throughout scripture all throughout scripture israel is um is an uh, the fig tree is an illustrative of picture of israel furthermore the fig tree has always been the fig tree has always been israel's national symbol um, specifically in regards to the national promises that god had given to them And even the Abrahamic promises way back when in regards to to their land and in regards to them being a mighty nation, right? The fig tree has been an illustrative example of this. And the thing about a fig tree, like all fruit trees that Jesus even says here, is that during the winter we know that that trees are dormant, right? They lose their leaves in the fall. They bear no fruit. They they go into this dormant stage. They look dead, correct? Correct? And 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 this is the illustrative measure by which Jesus is revealing truth to us. And 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 they show no signs of life. Yet when springtime comes, life is seen within the tree, as there are buds that form on the branches, and then new growth sprouts forth from these buds. And from these these this new growth, there's blossoms, and then there's fruit. There's fruit. Likewise, we know that the nation of Israel, as a fig tree, as a picture of the fig tree, the fig tree, that it had been dormant. From our perspective, it looked to be non-existent, dead. For nearly 2,000 years, as the Hebrew people had been dispersed from their land and spread throughout the whole world. But we know that on May 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel was rebirthed. It was reborn as a nation, and in spite of great opposition, and in spite of much adversity, Israel, like the fig tree has, that Jesus describes here, it has budded. It has given forth new growth. And, and never before in the history of the world, think about this, never before in the history of the world has any nation ever been destroyed, dispersed and then brought back into existence yet this is exactly what had happened to the nation of israel and jesus says when you see this happening you will know my return is near and in light of this, the words of Jesus then recorded in verse 32, if you look there, they can be a very exciting things for us who are Christians and perhaps maybe a scary thing for those who are not a Christian because in verse 32, we're being told that the generation who sees this event take place, the generation that sees this event take place, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, the fig tree once again budding and showing signs of life, this generation will not pass away or die before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of argument in regard to what what is a generation. Is that figurative? Is that literal? If, If it's literal, then how many years? I take it to be literal. And in regards to a biblical generation, I think we can determine... Logically, that a biblical generation is a 100-year period of time. And we can determine this by the fact that when Israel was held captive in Egypt, it was for 400 years. And in Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 16, we're told that their captivity would be until, God predicted, until the fourth generation. Fourth generation, 400 years. So if this thought holds true... In light of this prophecy, we can deduct that Jesus' return should take place sometime before 2048. I'm not naming a day or an hour. I want to make that very clear. But when we begin to talk about the rapture of the church, as I outlined it last week, which I believe is going to even take place before the seven years of tribulation, if you minus seven years off of the end of that 2048, that brings it to 2041. And we're going into 2020 next year. That means if this is all lining up the way that it appears to be, guys, and if we're, then, in fact, that generation, that there's a 21-year period of time within which we should expect the return of Jesus Christ. Not only has the stage been set, but prophetically speaking... If this is correct, we can conclude that time is short. Time is short. 21 years. I have kids that are older than that now. (laughs) Time is short. Verse 34. But, here's where it really comes to conclusion for us. But take heed to yourselves... In light of what everything Jesus says, He says, This take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. Now, I looked that word up, this carousing, and, you know, we might think about, you know, yeah, I used to go out and carouse, you know. This word really means you don't raise your hand, but you have you've, you've ever had just too much to drink before you were a Christian, <laughs> and you woke up the next morning and you were like, don't shout. You, you just like, don't want to, it's like, it's not a good feeling, right? It's that hangover that we describe after drinking way too much. That's what this word literally means, carousing. It's, it's hungover. He's, and he says, he says, that our hearts, take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the cares of this life and the day come upon you unexpectedly for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape these things that will come to pass and to stand before the son of man and in the daytime it says As we get back to the narrative, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. It's been said by men greater than me that I respect that prophecy should motivate us to sobriety. That's it in a nutshell. Prophecy... Should motivate us to sobriety. And even though the exact day of Jesus' return is still a mystery, since no man knows the day or the hour, we need to be watching. We need to be ready so that we may be counted worthy to escape what is going on, what is coming, what is going to come. And this is the main point that Jesus directs us and his disciples to as he finishes answering their questions. However, in doing so, there is this additional instruction in verse 34 to take heed. And and when when you break that word down and you look at it in in the Greek language, it simply means this. It's it's not a simple definition, but it, it, it really means this. It means to give yourself completely over to righteous living so that you're not weighed down by the things of this life and caught off guard when Jesus returns. Take heed. To give yourself Completely over to righteous living, to living in the right way, God's way, not our way. Remember in Romans chapter 13, verses through 11 and, 11 and 11 through 14, it says this And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And guys, whatever you decide to believe with anything that I've spoken here, the truth is, our salvation today is nearer than when we first believed. And you know what? Tomorrow, it'll be a day nearer. We're not not moving away. We're moving towards. And whether it's, it's with the rapture of the church or with our own physical death, by which we'll also enter into salvation because of the resurrection, right? It's drawing near. It's nearer than when we first believe. And, 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 and Paul, and he writes, the Romans he says, "'The night is far spent, the day is at a hand.'" Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not as in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and evy, but putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. There's also this instruction, and we'll end with this, that the worship team wants to come up. This instruction again in verse 36. To watch and pray. To watch and pray. And watch does not mean to stand around, guys, and to be looking for the signs. (laughs) Even though God's given us these things, we're not going to miss them as they come to pass. Our job isn't to watch for the signs. What this literally means is to be awake, to be alert, and to be attentive and, and, and what that means is our eyes are on Jesus, even now. He's leading us. He's guiding us. He has a plan for our lives. He has good works for us that He's appointed for us to walk in. Our eye should be in contact with His eye as He guides us. Attentive. And the fact of the matter is, is that as God's servants, we have much to be attentive to. And this is because God has entrusted each of us with a measure of responsibility. And a lot of these responsibilities that we've been entrusted with, it's important how we respond to the knowledge of Him, and it's important how we care for the people and the things that God has entrusted to us, considering, as the Bible tells us over and over again, considering that we have been called to be faithful 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let, so, let a man so consider us. Okay, guys? People consider us in a lot of different ways. They do. People have opinions about us. Our character, the way we live, it goes forth, and people make judgments about us. They just do. And we do as well. But let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, Moreover, it is required in a steward that one be found faithful. Did you know that over one-third of the Bible is prophecy? And I believe that we can never, because of this, I believe that we can never overemphasize prophecy in regards to Jesus' coming. And it is this hope that keeps our eyes on the life to come, and it keeps us waiting expectantly, and it keeps us in a place guys, where we will all finish the race well. Will you stand? I want to end with this again, where we began. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Guys, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have a fervent love for one another. Why? Because love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift. Minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And if anyone ministers, let him do so as with, the ability, with which the ability that God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.